continuing this morning with our study of the book of Colossians. If you've been here over the last month, hopefully you remember a few things about the book of Colossians. It was originally written as a letter by the Apostle Paul to the young church in a city called Colossae. Colossae was in Asia Minor, as it was called then. Today it's the country of Turkey. Paul didn't know the people to whom he was writing personally. He had maybe never been there. He didn't plant that church. Uh, Rather, that was the work of one of Paul's co-workers, Epiphras, who was from Colossae and was their pastor. The purpose of Paul's letter was to encourage and to teach and correct, though Paul was not their pastor or their founder, he very much loved them as a pastor and was concerned about them. The correcting was necessary because not unlike us, the Christians in Colossae were susceptible to the false teachings of the philosophies, the ideologies of the culture in which they lived, and of the influence of kind of the super religious people within the Christian community or the church community itself. So they were getting it from the outside, they were getting it from the inside, they were missing out and forgetting about who Jesus really was and about what it means to have life in him and to understand the gospel of grace and how that applies to one's life. So much of Paul's writing is corrective work. That's a short overview. Let me pray again as we uh, get into the word. God, help us to be attentive, maybe super attentive to your word, to your will, and your way. Give us hearts that are truly receptive, not just for information, but for transformation. Make us malleable in your hands, available to you. Do with us uh, as you please. Work within us and shape us. I pray and ask that as my words are true to your word, that they be taken to heart. If my words in any way stray or deviate from your word, may they be quickly forgotten. We pray in Christ the Lord. Amen. So the book of Colossians is four short chapters. This is week five of our study. You would think that we would be nearing the end of Colossians. However, we are still in chapter one uh, this morning. Moan, groan, groan. Uh, But as I said, and I promise we'll get into chapter two next week, I give you my word on that. But as I said when we started this, uh, Colossians is a rich, rich, rich book. And we continue to draw from the deep well that is Colossians. And in particular, uh, verses one, chapter one, verses 15 through 20, uh, constitute a hymn or a poem that probably belonged to the early church that some people think Paul lifted from the early church and put into his book. But it is rich, 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 and worthy, as I've said before, of your memorization. Those six verses, you're gonna get a memory verse card on the way out of the sanctuary this morning. And if you memorize that verse, along with those that you've received over the last few weeks, either uh, the cards themselves or by email, you will have memorized that whole little section, six verses, just six verses, verses 15 through 20, which will supply you with just an abundance of God's truth and grace for life. So I encourage you to do that. We're trying to do that as a family. Now follow along as I read, uh, beginning at verse 13, listen closely, this is the word of God. Paul writes, God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves, past tense, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And now these verses that ought to be very familiar to us at this point. The son, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the icon, 
the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn, the prototype from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him, through him, to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now God has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. And up to this point in our study of Colossians, we have read and talked about what God looks like, that God looks like Jesus, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the exact representation of his being, in whom, Paul says, God was pleased to have the fullness of God, all of his fullness, all of his person, all of his personality, all of his traits, dwell in him. And we have seen in Colossians that Jesus, being God, being one with the Father and the Spirit, was present at creation and was the active agent of creation. In other words, through him all things were made. And not only were all things made in him and through him, but also for him. And that not only have human beings been made for him, but Paul says all of creation has been made for him. And so we would do well to care for those things, all things that were made for Jesus' pleasure and for his glory, for his glory. And we have read and been reminded in Colossians that all things, all people and all creation are reconciled to God, brought back into relationship with God through Jesus, that we and all things, having been rescued from the dominion of darkness and brought into the kingdom of light, might experience his kingdom of love, the kingdom belonging to the one whom God the Father loves, the Son, through somehow in this cosmic, economic, business-like, judicial exchange, the shedding of his blood in our place on a cross that we might be forgiven. Forgiven. And that gets us to today and our focus on Paul's declaration that Jesus, Son of God, is the head of the body, the church. And Jesus is the head of the body, by virtue of the facts that he is God and that he is God in flesh, the perfect and unblemished man as well. He is God and he is fully human and that with the Father and the Spirit he created all things and that through him and his atoning death on the cross and the shedding of his blood, all things, including humanity, may be reconciled to him. And then in Paul's words, in him all things hold together we are also sustained by Jesus. Our lungs keep functioning because of Jesus. The world keeps spinning because of Jesus. The stars remain in their places because of Jesus. The physical laws of nature, the laws of biology that operate in our bodies are because of and sustained by Jesus, Paul says. And by virtue of all of these things, Jesus is 
the head of the church. Jesus, think about other ways that people become heads of things. Jesus didn't become the head of the church by familial succession because his dad or an uncle or an ancestor was the head of the church. His dad was a simple carpenter. Jesus didn't become the head of the church by papal succession or by congressional appointment or by raising the most money or by the casting of lots or some random lottery system, but rather because of who he is, what he has done, and what he continues to do. By virtue of who Jesus is and what he has done, Paul says, Jesus is the head of the body, the church. And while this may be fairly clear to you and me, this may be very elementary to us, it was not completely clear to some of the Christians in Colossae who had come under the influence and the persuasion of Greek philosophy and of the Gnostic thinkers who suggested that Jesus was probably a distant, layered emanation from God and not really God himself and that Jesus was part of the created order, maybe made by a lesser God or maybe even by a not-so-good God rather than Jesus being God himself and integral to all creation. And the Gnostics went so far as to question the uniqueness of Jesus and his singularly atoning death on a cross for the reconciliation of the world. And we should take seriously the ways in which they were persuaded and influenced in their Christology because the same is happening to us right now in our culture. We're just not so aware of it. And so Paul calls the church back. And while all of this may be fairly clear to you, it was not clear to them. The Gnostics in and around Colossae suggested that Jesus was important, but not essential. They had given Jesus a prominent place in their lives, in the church, and in the world, but not the preeminent place. They had given Jesus a prominent place but not the preeminent place. And so Paul states again in no uncertain terms, and for me, I can't read these words enough. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for in him all things were created. And Paul has other words to use, but he continually uses all, all, all. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, all things. He's before them. And in him, all things hold together. He was what the Greeks thought of as the logos, the reason, the glue that kept the universe together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn. And again, firstborn is not about order, but about rank, we talked about several weeks ago, about priority and power. The firstborn among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy the supremacy, not a supremacy. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things. And what a novel thing that everything you see, every person you've known, may be reconciled, reunited to God by one person, in one person. He is the focal point of human history and the focal point of the cosmos the axis and the fulcrum on which everything bends and twists and turns and balances. 
And Paul states as clearly as he can to the church, which he had described in other of his letters as a body, that Christ was their head, that Christ is the head, that Christ is our head. And just to state the obvious, if you take away a body's head, it is dead. If you take away a body's head, it dies. A body can live without a toe or a foot or a leg or an arm. A body can live without an ear or a nose or a tongue or an eye. A body can live without a lung or a kidney. A body can live without a gallbladder. A body can live without a colon. A body cannot live without a head. From the head, a body functions. It's from the head that a body gets its life. It's from a head that a body gets its identity. It's from the head that a body gets its direction. You know this in basketball and football and sports. You know where the player's going by the direction of their head. It's natural. It's a law of nature. It's only the really savvy athletes who look one way and go the other. But nature says where your head is going, that is where the body goes. And while this may seem so obvious to us in so many ways, it was not so obvious to the Colossians that it did not need to be stated clearly. And the same still needs to be stated and restated clearly with humility and conviction. There's enough pride and arrogance and boasting in the church today when we enter areas like this as we relate to our culture. But these things need to be restated with conviction, but with also incredible humility. This is not about us. This is not about how good we are or how right we are. It has nothing to do with our worth or our value or our achievements. It's all about him. It's all about him. I recently ran across the following statement on a sister church's website. Forgive me if this uh, seems like throwing stones. Their website reads, we welcome people of all kinds and backgrounds as partners in the spiritual journey. Excellent. We take the Bible seriously because we don't have to take it literally. We keep the faith but drop any dogma that gets in the way uh, of the love that God, the love that is God. And I appreciate their affirmation that God is love and that that's most important. Jesus Christ is the foundation of our path, the God of our path, but we recognize that he represents one of many ways to know God. We recognize the faiths of other people who have other names for the pathway to the divine. We don't believe in converting anyone from any one set of beliefs to another. And while I appreciate a lot of what the church states, and I understand the reasons why they state those things and those things in this way, in this context. I can't reconcile many of their words to what Paul says in verses 15 to 20. The Son, the Son, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by Him through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have supremacy. 
For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on a cross. The 20th century uh, American pastor, author, and really in many ways was regarded as a prophet. A.W. Tozer wrote these words. A new Decalogue, and Decalogue is a, a fancy word for the Ten Commandments. A new Decalogue has been adopted by some of our day. The first words of which read, Thou shalt not disagree. And a new set of Beatitudes too, which begins, Blessed are they that tolerate everything, for they shall not be made accountable for anything. It is now the accepted thing to talk over religious differences in public with the understanding that no one will try to convert another or point out errors in his belief. Imagine Moses agreeing to take part in a panel discussion with Israel over the golden calf. Or Elijah engaging in a gentlemanly dialogue with the prophets of Baal. Or try to picture Jesus seeking a meeting of minds with the Pharisees to iron out their differences. The blessing of God is promised to the peacemaker, but the religious negotiator had better watch his step. Darkness and light cannot, can never be brought together by talk. Some things are non-negotiable. And while that may feel firm, harsh, rigid to some of us, on the other hand, what's the alternative? And Tozer wrote those words more than 50 years ago. How much more today are they true? Jesus is the head of the body, the church. The Pope is not the head of the church. A bishop or a priest or a pastor is not the head of the church. A board of elders is not the head of the church. Jesus is the head of the church. Some congregations have a particular emphasis or focus that becomes the head of the church. But social justice is not the head of the church. Worship music is not the head of the church. Worship itself is not the head of the church. Worship services are not the head of the church. Bible knowledge is not the head of the church. Vacation Bible camp, as cool and fun and as amazing as it is, is not the head of the church. Some churches make their building to be the head of the church or a stained glass window to be the head of the church. None of those things are the head of the church. The head of the church is Jesus. And so our first stated value as a congregation is Jesus Christ as Lord. And Jesus Christ is Lord. And everything else is secondary to that. In other words, Jesus is the head of this church. We exist for him. The body exists for the head and not for itself. And we take our cues from him. He's the firstborn over all creation. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the firstborn from among the dead, so that in all things he might have supremacy. There are churches and associations of churches and seemingly Christian movements that one would think would affirm the headship of Jesus, but which don't even come close to that, it seems, because maybe because we get off on our own tangents of all sorts, maybe because Jesus is dangerous, maybe because he is threatening, maybe because he makes us uncomfortable. That doesn't change the truth and the reality, though. I would not be here. I would not, I don't think I would believe in God. I certainly would not have attempted to conform my life to God or listen to God at all were it not for Jesus. 
and the perfection that he is in every way. Philip Yancey wrote, I must admit that Jesus has revised in flesh many of my harsh and unpalatable notions about God. Why am I a Christian, I sometimes ask myself. And to be perfectly honest, the reasons reduced to two. One, the lack of good alternatives, and two, Jesus. Brilliant, untamed, tender, creative, slippery, irreducible, paradoxically humble. Jesus stands up to scrutiny. He is who I want my God to be. He is the image of the invisible God the firstborn over all creation, the firstborn from among the dead. And we could go through the Gospels and through Paul's letters and through the New Testament and acknowledge the uniqueness and the supremacy and the beauty of Jesus. But what would we then do with that? Michael Frost says, if the heart of Christian spirituality is to increasingly become like our founder, then an authentic comprehension of Jesus becomes critical. An authentic comprehension of Jesus becomes critical. And so the church is called to a deep dive into Jesus, to immerse ourselves not in liturgy or programs or rhythms, but into the person of Jesus himself. Frost says elsewhere, surely the challenge for the church today is to be taken captive by the agenda of Jesus rather than seeking to mold him to fit our agendas no matter how noble they may be. Jesus is the head of the body and warrants our complete and utter attention as Paul writes elsewhere that our eyes might be fixed on him in everything, always, and in all things. And not on being Presbyterian, not on being a member of the church. I got asked this week twice by people if someone was a member of the church. Forget membership. Keep your eyes on the head of the church. Shane Claiborne, the author of this little book on... Sermon on the Mount called The Irresistible Revolution, once surveyed a group of people who identified themselves as, quote, strong followers of Jesus and asked them, did Jesus spend time with the poor, for example? Around 80% replied in the affirmative, leaving a disturbing 20% of so-called strong followers of Jesus who think Jesus didn't spend time with the poor. That this could be the case should remind us of the levels of Christian ignorance about our founder and Lord. But the more disturbing fact is that Claiborne asked the same group, do you spend time with the poor? Only 2% replied that they did. There's for many an almost complete disconnect between our beliefs about Jesus and our actions. This disconnection lies at the nub of the problem facing the church today. Take a deep breath. Go ahead, take a deep breath. I need a break. He is the head of the body. He is everything. He tells the lungs when to breathe and the heart when to pump and the legs when to move and the arms when to rise, and the mouth when to speak. The, the word that Paul uses for head is also uh, used of rivers, as in headwaters in Greek. 
a river has its life, it flows from, it has its substance from the headwaters. A person, a body, gets their directions from the head, their guidance, where to go, how to be, what to do. All of our attention needs to be focused on Jesus. All of our life needs to be immersed in him. He is the head of the body, the church. We have no other. May our attention be on him and him alone, weeding out all of the distractions of our culture and of religion in our midst, that he might be glorified, that his kingdom might come, and that we might experience the fullness of of his grace that Paul talks about. May this be so. Let's pray. You are the head of the body, Jesus. Help us live into that reality to recognize that, to treat you as our head, to find our life in and through our head. Not our mascot, not our cheerleader, not our spokesperson but the one who gives us life, who gives us breath, who gives us strength, who gives us grace. Be the center of everything in your church and in our lives. We thank you that in you, we who were far off, living in darkness, have been brought near, have been awakened and stirred and filled with your spirit and given life and abundance. Continue to reconcile us to yourself through the work of Jesus already done once and for all. May your name be praised. May your glory fill the whole earth. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.